0: This is the Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Bélanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the magnificent Mr. Simon Bélanger. Good sir. How are you? We have an electric episode today. You're going to talk about target date funds and like, you know, people are thinking, is this a good option? They've seen they've seen this offered through the years and maybe not known what it is. And so that's going to be a good little segment. I'm going to talk about Nick's sleep and his uh awesome letter to Warren Buffett. And then we're going to go into stocks on our watch list, fan favorite. You have a great name here to talk about and I yeah. have what I'll call a surprising name to be on my watch list. So make sure you keep listening. We'll each have, it's not meant to be a stock pitch, but it's meant to be a segment where you have our attention company X, Y, or Z, and it's, it's time to do some more digging. How are we doing, man? I haven't, uh, we haven't chatted in like a week or week or two weeks or so.
1: Yeah, I'm doing good yeah like I was saying just did a presentation for my work for pension and then we're recording so I feel like I'll be drained after that because I love presenting and stuff like that but it is very draining like you feel a bit tired afterwards but no aside from that just doing talking, good, talking a lot in general is like draining yeah. well especially if you're using your you know there's talking just to talk but when you're using actual brain power it does take a lot of energy that's where you realize that the brain is quite the muscle
0: I was wiped. I did 17 meetings in basically mostly one day on Monday. I was in New York. I uh, I met our buddy Kevin O'Leary as well, by the way. So we talked. fellow Canadian, that, Kevin O'Leary. Yeah, yeah, that was my intro. That was my intro. I met him in the back room of this conference that we were sponsoring. So it's pretty sick. I got like a photo of Kevin O'Leary doing a presentation. And then it says sponsored by. FinChat, So it was just kind of like it was cool, you know, like whether whether you like the the Kevin O'Leary TV personality or, you know, his his FTX issues (laughs) in the past, which a lot of people were asking about him about that, by the way, on the on the panel, which is to no one's surprise. But, you know, as a Canadian kid growing up watching Dragon's Den, it was a bit of a full circle moment. I thought it was pretty awesome.
1: No, I think it would have been pretty cool. I mean, I don't think he's going to be answering questions on that for the next several years. Probably it will come back up when there's like a Netflix documentary on it. They're probably going to get someone to play him or maybe he'll agree to actually star in it if it's a documentary. Well,
0: dude, he was answering questions. He was saying yeah. like he was remorseful about it or whatever. I I, yeah. I can't really recall exactly, but he said it was a mistake. and. You know, you know, uh, being in the same room as Kevin O'Leary and just like off camera or whatever, and you're in a group of people in a circle and he just owns the room and the fact that like everyone's in a circle and everyone's just asking him questions because, well, he's the, the main event there. Yeah. But he is such a compelling and persuasive storyteller. It is. Like it's a clinic to watch. Like I, I was just kind of blown away by like his his actual talent of being a, a phenomenal storyteller. And no matter if you were, you left like whatever he was saying with like, yes, I agree. Like that's how persuade, Even if you were like. You're not on the same page at all. Like he's so persuasive, and you know, obviously a very talented guy. All right, let's get into uh, target date funds. Yeah. This is one of those jargony type offerings that you might have heard at work.
1: Yeah, exactly. So target date fund, people may be familiar, especially if they have defined contribution pension plans. They're pretty common. They tend to be like even a default option for people because what it does, it's you uh, pick a fund. Typically, you'll pick a date that will be close to your retirement and then the funnel adjusts automatically the asset allocation to more equity heavy when you're younger and then slowly you know increase fixed income until you reach retirement i think it's a really good option for a lot of people people that really don't know much about investing they you know might not want to learn about investing, they just kind of want to set it and forget it. I think it's a really good option for that. I think I may have talked about these funds before once on the podcast. The reason why I'm redoing a segment is I know we've had new listeners, but uh, recently I noticed that BlackRock was actually just started offering an ETF version of it. And to my knowledge, it's the only one I looked, I looked at Fidelity, I looked at all the big asset manager, even Vanguard, and feel free, people, if they know of other options than the one from BlackRock, which is the iShares Life pad. but the it just started in October, so it's just a few weeks old. So it's very new, so it's it's actually a pretty compelling option for ETS for people that want to maybe do self-directed, but really, like, do the best bare minimum and have essentially professional money manager kind of adjust it automatically over time.
0: You've seen this type of product become more and more common for ETFs where it's like you have the end customer very familiar with purchasing that product now over the last like five, 10 years, but these companies are then rolling out these like set it and forget it type low fee products, but in an ETF distribution. Ultimately, right? Like it's net net. These are like net net innovations that are good for investors because the fees are lower and they're getting the same or even better products. So, yeah, we've seen more and more of this. And I think that's just kind of the next iteration of like these all in one set it and forget it ETFs
1: yeah exactly and for so people understand too it is kind of a it's a fun of funds right so you know it is it adjusts over time but the equity allocation i mean there's several etfs index etf within it that allocates towards equity same thing for the fixed income portion there's just not one there's going to be several so you are very well diversified with these kind of funds but again it's not a great option if you're someone who wants to not set it and forget it and really you know be a bit more hands-on you may want to you know be a bit more hands-on but not necessarily be picking individual stocks but you'd like Pass- passive I think is the right word yeah exactly have a more passive strategy but still pick the ETFs it does require a bit more time because obviously you know I think over time, you'll probably want to rebalance it a little bit, adjust the allocation. Even if you're fully equities, you maybe want to minimize or reduce your Canadian exposure, your US exposure, whatever it is, right? Emerging market, however you develop it. So it's not necessarily the best product for that, but it's definitely a great option for fees because I'm looking at, I was looking at a bunch of them. So it goes from 2025 to 2065 and the 2025 again it's just when you're either retiring or you think you'll need the funds like typically they'll be used for retirement and then they're in five years increments so typically what you'll do is you'll choose the one that's closest to your retirement date but what you can do if you want increased equities for example you can choose one that'll be further out than your actual retirement date so you could choose a 2065 when you really are thinking of retiring in 2055 so what that will do is it will actually keep the fixed income portion lower so there is some flexibility that you can play a little bit with it and you can even you know maybe you put half of your money in a life pad a target date fund and the other half in individual etf individual stocks like there's still some flexibility that you can do because it's self-directed
0: this is cool so are they Changing that asset allocation every year or what's their protocol?
1: Yeah, that I'm not sure. I think it varies from target date funds. I'll show, I'll share here for our uh, joint TCI's listener, just so they have an idea of the differences between. So the one I'm looking at for those listening is the 2025 and 2045. And you can clearly see the 2025, it's someone that would be retiring like pretty much now or in the next couple of years. So you get fixed income, 56% and equity at 43%. But then if you look at the 2045, your equity is 89% and the fixed income is actually 10%, a bit more than 10%. So it gives people an idea of how it adjusts. It's probably on a yearly basis, I would think it it might be a bit more frequent. But essentially, if we were three years away from or two years away from 2045, the 2045 allocation would look exactly or very similar to the 2025 right now. Right. So it looks similar to a kind of like you know, pick, pick your age. Exactly. That's it. Yeah.
0: Your age in bonds, right? And then the rest in equity. It looks very similar to that kind of rule of thumb, which, you know, we've been... It's one of those things where, you know, rule of thumbs, like we understand why they exist, but sometimes there's some nuance and like we've been a little bit critical of just kind of, you know, picking a number in the air and just say, oh, that's a good rule of thumb and sticking with it. But dude, these products are pretty like awesome for... Yeah. The more passive investor where it's like, I want to own this. I want my fees to be lower. I don't want to get screwed. I want to understand this. I want to do some research, but I also don't want to pick stocks all day. Right. And so I think that those are, those are good options. I think that overall the DIY investor has gotten such better options. I just worry that in the past few years, the options have gotten so much better, but there's a little bit of decision paralysis when it comes to like a passive strategy. Like it's supposed to be stupid, simple when, when you're just picking to a passive strategy and now I have to th- pick through 550 passive ETF products. You know what I mean? Like the beauty and the simplicity has gotten difficult when there's decision paralysis.
1: You know, and I think that's, that's exactly. It. I mean, at the end of the day, even if you don't think about just index ETF, ETF as a whole, there's probably what tens of thousand ETFs to choose from. It's, it can be overwhelming. And I think these target date fund for me, the perfect candidate, you know, I'm sure you know friends or family. I, I know friends and family that are with mutual funds with banks and they may realize that they're paying very high fees. This is. A fantastic option because oftentimes the option with the bank will have a similar asset allocation but they're paying two two and a half percent in fees where this is 10 basis points for most of them 10 to 15 basis points so you're essentially reducing your fees almost to nothing compared to what the bank is and you know for a lot of people thinking of switching i think a lot of it is, you know, they they get scared a little bit, which is fine. I mean, the unknown is, you know, people can think about their whole life, whatever you go, you go on a trip on your own, you know, it's kind of scary at first, but oftentimes, you know, so those are the best experiences and decision, but doing the leap can be very scary and a product like that can minimize the amount of work that they have to do and still have a very comprehensive product that, you know, adjusts over time. Obviously, personally, I think the fixed income is pretty high when you get close to retirement. That's just my personal personal belief. But again, compared to what the mutual funds would put you into, it's very similar in terms of allocation, but at least you're saving on the fees. So typically, your outcome will be much better because you don't have to make up that extra 2%. You know, it's very popular is the Vanguard all-in-one asset
0: allocation ETFs like VGROW. Yeah, Which yeah. is like eight, 80, 20 equities and bonds. And then people will just, you know, self directed move it to the more, you know, the higher allocation of bonds, less allocation of equities as they go, kind of self directed. This is basically just kind of doing that for them. Exactly. I, pref- I prefer the, the former than the, than the latter because I'm assuming yeah. there's a, a an advantage in fees and you're going to know your situation better in terms of risk tolerance and dude what what if you what if you can retire at 50 what if you can retire at 45 you know like that's why i think it's just better to do the self directed passive route
1: yeah no i i mean i definitely agree with you for me i think if i have friends and families that come to me i would probably recommend the target date if i know they're very limited in knowledge they don't necessarily want to put a whole lot of time i think this is the the perfect kind of set it and forget it that's the way i see it and you can always if they decide to retire early you can always sell and switch out to a date that makes more sense true so uh that's because these again, are liquid these are liquid etfs yeah exactly that's it and that's why i think it's for a very seg specific segment of the population i think this is a great option unfortunately it's only in usd so that's I think it that's a plus, but it could be a downside for people because right. they, yeah, they yeah. still have any con- who you ask. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so they have to convert to USD, but still I, I really think this is a solid option for a lot of people. But again, with you, I think if you're willing to put a little bit of time, then the passive strategy with you know, once in a while rebalancing yourself, I think is more optimal. But you have to put in a bit more work. So that's kind of the gist of it. I will put a link in the show note if people are interested. That show. All the different funds that they have. They even have one that you essentially you put when you're into retirement. That's even a bit more conservative. Very cool. All right, let's move on to the Nick Sleep
0: portfolio and his letter to Warren Buffett. So the Nick Sleep is a you know a fairly famous investor at this point. He and a partner ran the Nomad Investment Partnership. And his annual letters have become very famous because they're extremely well written and he had pretty amazing returns during that time. They ran the firm for 13 years before winding it down. They made their clients about $2 billion in the process. And over that 13 year period, they returned 921% and the MSCI World Index cuz they're out of the UK returned 116%. So basically almost almost 9x the performance of the market and so that works out to a 20.8% compounded annual growth rate on the fund for those 13 years. So pretty, you know, pretty great performance. Of course, you know, once you're over that 20% now there are a lot of fund managers, not, 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 not a lot. There are many fund managers that are able to achieve that kind of time frame, But once you get over the time, once you get over the 10 year time period, now it's a little bit more impressive. I'm still more impressed at the people who maintain like 16% over like 30 or 40 years. Like those, those are like extremely amazing track records. Like wealth beating, like world changing types of returns.
1: I mean, even even like 11% plus on a consistent basis. I think for me that without is doubt. amazing. Even I'm if just talking just, about like yeah. Hall
0: of Fame, oh, you know, yeah, Kareem yeah. <laughs> Abdul-Jabbar numbers here, right? Like <laughs> you know, like the Mount Rushmore of uh Connor McDavid
1: many. and. Tim years yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: exactly uh you know him and M- 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 bedard but the you, you know what i'm getting at here right yeah. like of course those 11 percent or even just market returns over 30 40 years are world beating but once you get you know four or five percentage points uh over a long time of outperformance you're you're in a kind of an elite category today nick sleep has Post wind down of the fund, he owns three stocks and he's a 13F filer. So it tells you how rich he is. Rich, uh, well, I, I guess the fund, right? Like his yeah. the family office that he's managing right now is three stocks. It's one third Amazon, one third Costco and one third Berkshire and basically does nothing like literally nothing. I think it's been that for several years. Amazon's now 38% of the portfolio. Costco's 34% of the portfolio and Berkshire's 28% of the portfolio. And so I I did some rounding up with decimal points there. So hopefully we got to a hundred, but it is just three stocks, super concentrated, does nothing. And and it's pretty great. So during that run, Berkshire is a huge... You know Warren Buffett's company is obviously a huge part of his portfolio now, but it was a huge part of the portfolio and a huge part of the returns during that time stretch as well. And so I'm going to read the letter. It's a little bit long, but it's not too bad. Just like two paragraphs here. And then the response from Buffett as well. Dear Mr. Buffett, after 13 years of running the Nomad Investment Partnership, Zach and I, who is partner, have decided to close the fund. The process requires us to return the cash. So after many years as shareholders in Berkshire... Over 10, we recently sold our shares. It appears to all the world that the performance of Nomad has enjoyed over the years was created by Zach and me. This is not the case. As time goes by, the performance that our clients have received is the capitalization of the success of the firms which we have invested in. In other words, the real work is done by you and the good people at Berkshire. One more part here. The purpose of this letter is to say a bit, a very big thank you and to let you know that you have made a real difference. Nomad was not a particularly large fund, but over the years, it did make around US 2 billion for its clients, which were predominantly cherries and educational endowments. Berkshire was a big part of that. That strikes us as capitalism working well. So it's basically saying, Buffett, thanks, thanks pal. You've been, (laughs) you've been crushing it. But it's also a reminder that We're investing in companies and the result of our portfolio is not from our magical stock picking ability. It's just about, you know, giving capital to great managers and great companies and letting it compound over time because these are portfolio, the companies in the portfolio are businesses and we cannot forget that. Buffett wrote back. This was June 12th, 2014. Dear Nick, thanks for sending along the update. You and Zach have made the right choice. I predict that you will find life is just beginning. Best regards, Warren Buffett. And I th- I just thought it was a really great exchange between operator investor uh, of two really well respected people in the industry. Uh, you know, IQ that probably is triple triple mind and maybe maybe quadruple mind. And so I just wanted to point that out. And and you can see how he's investing his money now. It is one third Amazon, one third Costco, one third Berkshire. And just lets it ride. It's been, again, many, many years of outperformance just owning those three names. So I just wanted to highlight Nick's leap and uh, his letter to Buffett.
1: you think Buffett wrote that letter on the typewriter or computer? <laughs> yeah, it looks. <laughs> it looks computer, I, I think,
0: yeah. Yeah, I think he so. Got, yeah. He might have got someone to type that type up it. and then it, 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 <laughs> it is his actual yeah the paper signature. yeah signature there
1: i just the i just but... joke because when they use like powerpoint or something it's just like the basic basic stuff you know the white slide with like nothing yeah. else at all so but i mean obviously how old is buffett like 88
0: 89 90 no no he's in his 90s is he okay yep let me see Char- charlie turns 100 on new year's day so we're coming up to oh. that buffett's 93 he is 93. august 30
1: crazy how sharp they still are yeah we almost
0: have the same birthday me and mr warren buffett he's two days after me few few decades uh, apart a yeah. few decades older yeah three, charlie three turns quarters 100. century
1: <laughs> yeah yeah literally <laughs> almost yeah
0: charlie becomes a cent centenarian is that that's the word right centenarian i don't know yeah on january 1st what a remarkable track record
1: no that's pretty cool and obviously just you know investing in great companies and letting it compound but doesn't mean also to not you know not follow the companies I think that's important to remember and you know being critical of your own investments as well because sometimes you can be blinded by something just because you believe in the company but there's some clear warning signs so I think it's just a reminder to you know I think it's important to think long term but sometimes the company, the trajectory it's taking. It's not exactly what you had factored in when you started your investment. And you may have to make some changes based on that.
0: Let's move on to stocks on our watch list. Let's get you to go first here. This has been a low pro compounding machine and maybe one that not many of the folks have, list, uh, have at least looked up before. So I'll let you take it away.
1: Yeah, so um, the one I'm looking at is Tractor Supply. Uh, the ticker is TSCO. It is listed in the U.S., It's a company I've heard quite a few times before, and definitely this will be maybe a shallow dive. Obviously, I'm just giving an overview, uh, but definitely one that's piqued my interest. Just looking at the metrics, it's quite impressive, and I'll go over some of the reasons that I think it is. But just to give people an idea of what they are, I've never heard of it, so what they kind of state themselves the business of being on their website is for 85 years tractor supply company has been passionate about serving the needs of recreational farmers ranchers homeowners gardener pet enthusiasts and all of who enjoy living life out here it's a it's a pretty big company too i think i was looking at the market cap it's a market cap of 22.4 billion and an enterprise value of 27 billion so definitely not a small company i would say probably a medium cap by today's standards kind of always forget now the things have changed so much in the past few years but in terms of exposure, so, or I mean store count, here is what it looks like. So as of the end of 2022, they had a total of 2,333 stores, which is broken down by 2,066 tractor supply store, 186 pens, pet sense stores, 81 Horseshoe farm and home stores i probably butchered the name and they also had nine distribution centers i love when there's these weird names i'm just like okay give it a shot yeah give it a crack see uh, it turns out sometimes you just know
0: it's wrong yeah. but you're like yeah i'm just gonna run yeah, exactly
1: with it. <laughs> it's probably wrong and I was looking at Stratosphere or FinChat, sorry that. And the store count looks like it's now at 2393. I just went to their latest annual statement, which was 2022, so that's why I wasn't the most up to date. Which would bring it to a 2.5 percent increase in store count for this year so far. Now, in the past five years, store count has increased at a compound annual growth rate of 4.5 percent. I haven't listened to any of the calls or did a deep dive into all of the statements, but that's definitely something I want to understand for management what's the outlook for the next five years for the store count because clearly there is a decent amount of growth that's actually coming from that and from what i can see they seem to be pretty much located all over the, the u.s i don't know if they have a store in every single state but it does look like they do just based on the map unless like i don't see hawaii and all of that so continental u.s it definitely looks like they have a store count in every single state and clearly Clearly, Texas here is the biggest uh, kind of area in terms of store count. It has more than 10% of their store count for tractor supply, but also um, about 10% for pet sense, but definitely located across the U.S. Not surprising, Texas. It's a pretty big state population as well and never been myself, but, you know, from what I've heard and seen, there's definitely, uh, it looks like a lot of farmers and ranchers in, in Texas. You've been to Texas, right? Just to Austin. That doesn't (laughs) Austin's a great city, but (laughs) we're not talking farmland (laughs) here. I'm just looking at the store
0: count here. Yeah. December twenty nineteen there was eighteen hundred and forty-four stores. As of their latest Q three September ending of this year, basically twenty two hundred stores. So they've been they've been adding like do some quick math here, like twenty a quarter roughly sometimes more like in this, uh, in Q4 of 2020, maybe they did some acquisitions because in 2022 and Q3 and Q4. So the end of last year, they went, they basically built 150 stores. So I don't know if they bought something there and rebranded them, but they have been like aggressively improving this footprint over time.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I, like I'm showing on for joint TCI here. So you have back in 2018. So the last five years, they had what, like 1765 stores and then you're close to 2200 trailing 12 months. So definitely really impressive what they, they've done in terms of store count. They seem to have a good strategy because like I'll talk uh, later, their profitability metrics are quite good. Whereas sometimes when there's too many too much expansion, I can really hit the margins if it's not done properly. But for them, it looks like they've again, without doing a deep dive here, it does look like they've found the, the right kind of mix. In terms of metrics, I talked about the market cap before, but the trailing 12-month PE is 20. Over the last five years, that's actually a pretty good PE for this company. If you look at the historical five years, it ranged from 14.5 in March of 2020, which we all know why that probably was the case, to 29 as it peaked. So I would say it's almost always in the 20s in terms of range. Of course, this is trailing, so you have to use that with a grain of salt it's not forward looking ev to free cash flow of 52 now it's hard to say for this part because it, but it does seem somewhat re- reasonable for the past five years for this company so it's hard for me to say whether i think it's cheaper or not from that perspective over the last five years uh, sales have grown at a compound annual growth rate so a Kgar of 14 percent diluted eps has increased at a KGAR of 20% free cash flow per share has increased at a KGAR of 18%. So, I don't know about you, but they're doing something right.
0: <laughs> yeah, those are some really solid growth metrics for a company that is, you know, fairly mature. I mean, it's not it's it's, you know, it's not at clearly reached maturation growing those numbers, but it's also not a retail concept that they invented last week. So no, this exactly. is really impressive.
1: Yeah, that's it. And they pay a nice little dividend to be honest so they pay a quarterly dividend a dollar and three cents which yields around two percent right now and the dividend has increased had a whopping kicker of 28 percent over the last five years it's it's massive like you you check the dividend increase and it's been something else and they've also been buying shares pretty pretty regularly and their free cash flow per share was everyone knows if you've been listening to the podcast has been increasing very nicely. Nicely over time as well so if we're looking in the past 10 years you were looking at 80 cents a share and now trailing 12 months at 740 a share it kind of peaked in the in 2020 which i'm not surprised right a lot of their items were probably in hot demand because of the COVID 19 pandemic so there was like a big boom there and kind of went back down but if you remove 2020 it's actually pretty much steady way up so pretty impressive from that standpoint
0: and the first thing, the first thing I look at here for these retail concepts, right? Cause you know, you grow the business by new store accounts. You're looking for some organic growth as well. I don't know if they break that out I have to look at the KPIs, but you're, you're looking at the return on invested capital for this business, because you know, you're looking at the success of like a dollar or other retail concepts where it's like they're in rapid expansion mode, you know, opening 20 a quarter, like 150 in 2022, maintaining a 21% five-year average return on invested capital means that the unit economics of store openings are really good. Like it's 19% for Dollarama. And we're talking about like some of the kind of best, best in class metrics in terms of store openings and the unit economics around that. So there's a, you know, it, it creates value by adding more stores, like clearly.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one other thing that I think is really impressive is their gross margins and operating margins. So if you look at the last 10 years gross margins have steadily increased from 34 to 35.6 percent so just very slowly but you can definitely see the increase and then operating margins have held pretty steady at right around 10 percent dipped a little bit around nine percent in 2017 to 2019 but aside from that last 10 years right around 10 percent so it's telling me that they're able to like you said open these new stores but also keep their margin especially with inflation that we've seen the last couple of years that's even more impressive and in terms of share count uh, they've decreased their share count at a annual growth compound annual growth rate of 2.4 percent over the last five years again that's very impressive and they're clearly you know giving back to shareholders in the form of buybacks and dividends returning a lot of capital and their total returns are just like they're very impressive over the last five years it almost like pretty much doubled the returns of the S&P 500 not quite so 141% total returns versus 79% for the S&P 500 so this I mean it ended up being a bit more of a shallow drive here and I know like i put in or i think you added in the comparable sales growth so definitely that has dipped a little bit in recent quarters but again given the economic environment i was looking at their their earnings release the latest one i think it was flat comparable sales growth but looking at other retailers recently that's actually pretty good In this current environment to have flat comparable sales growth, that's much better. I mean, it's way better than a Canadian tire. I know it's not the same, but it's also better than a Home Depot. So I think it's something to keep in mind that, yes, it may be not growing as as robustly as it did from a comparable sales, but the fact that they're holding up pretty nicely, I think that's worth something. What is happening
0: in 2020 there with the, the same store sales growth? It goes absolutely bonkers—nearly 40 yeah. percent. That that, that has to be COVID, right?
1: Yeah, I guess it's just like home improvement and yeah. yeah, landscaping. You know, everyone and their brother and sister was getting a pet, like all these things, right? That were. <laughs> That were big tailwinds for them so that that would be my assumption i mean i would have to go back but i think that's a pretty safe assumption to make but that's it that's yeah. my the stock on uh, you know on our radar on my radar at least uh, i know it was a bit of a shallow dive but the more i kept reading the more i kept researching but i wanted to keep it not too long at least yeah
0: no very cool i mean i for me you're looking at this thing it's they have an interesting, for those who are unfamiliar with the the store, I've been to one before. And are you familiar with home hardware in, in Canada? Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. The home hardware building center. It, it's like that where it's not in very, it's not typically in big urban centers. They, they will go into the rural areas where they don't have to compete with Home Depot. And so yeah. where, where there's not enough population for Home Depot and Lowe's to 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 set up shop, so they they really thrive in kind of like r- more rural areas. The same way that Home Hardware's playbook here is in Canada with more rural areas, and of course they they'll have some urban locations as well. But that's the bread and butter
1: where they're you know competing with Home Depot is hard. Yeah, a lot of the items would overlap, but they have some differentiators, right? Like they, they offer like, you know, livestock food. I think like I heard someone saying a while back like you can even buy like chicken and stuff, I think in some some of the locations, right? When it comes to farming, yeah,
0: you're right. Yeah. That that is a differentiator because that's their roots, but they've really They've grown well past that into, you know, you can go buy a barbecue, you know, you can buy, you can
1: buy hardware, you can buy lumber, I'm pretty sure. So, yeah. But no, it was uh, kind of fun. I'll definitely try to dig more into that. I like the name you've picked. (laughs) Yeah, an interesting name. How things have changed. (laughs) Yeah,
0: how things have changed. Well, I think that that's a great place to start. So I got off the plane back to the Toronto City island airport you take an underground tunnel under lake ontario to get back to the mainland if people are familiar with billy bishop airport and you take an elevator up back once you've made it onto ma- mainland you take a bunch of escalators and it's a very small airport right like there's only <laughs> there's not multiple planes
1: taking off or anything is it like, still it's, just porter there porter near canada okay okay yeah because it used to be just porter i think right think so. Yeah. I've taken both
0: Porter and Air Canada from there, but mostly Porter Airlines from there. I don't know if there's anything else. But anyways, it's just it's the point I'm trying to get it across is a small elevator. They move everyone through an elevator when you get off the plane, right? Like it can't be, it can't. they can't do that at Pearson International. So I kid you not, every single person, I'm talking 10 plus people, it's a big elevator, went on their phones. And at the same time, everyone like all at once, like some dystopian Black Mirror shit. Simultaneously, everyone pulled up the Uber app to get their car. You know, you you, you gonna get picked up from the airport, and it was one of those anecdotal moments where you, as an investor, go, "I gotta take a look under the hood." You know, I got, I got, I gotta just hop on Stratosphere and start looking. Just one more time, a name that I've just not, I've passed as an investor so many times. So, of course, we're talking about Uber. You know, the brand that everyone knows and the, the app you probably have on your phone
1: or or uber as the french would say is, <laughs> right. is that right i don't know <laughs> i assume because uh, especially in france they love like saying english words but with a french like very clearly like they'll say instead oh, okay. of yeah parking, just to let you know yeah they'll say they will be talking <laughs> french and then they'll say parking they say ah. it with like, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. That's uh,
0: I love French Canadian accents. I, I well I more love French,
1: French from France. If you go in Canada and you get francophone, they'll usually like use an English word, but they'll say it the like English way. But then the Ooh, rest right, is right. all in French. Yeah, right.
0: So I'll set the stage with I never thought Uber was going to be a good business. I. I you know, I, I looked at the statements when they went public. I looked at their S1. I, I, I reviewed it for four or five quarters after being public in 2019 and then into 2020. And I never thought it was going to be a good business. I've been very critical of the cash burn. You know, they're burning what, like four or five billion in in cash a quarter. It was out, out of control. And I was very critical of the unit economics overall, very critical of the moat. I thought, you know, this is just such a zero interest rate phenomenon. The fact that this thing has been funded to to finally reach scale at this point, like investors have piled in billions and billions of dollars to this thing that can't make money. Well, an investor's superpower is being able to change your mind when the facts change and recognizing the facts have changed for sure. And I was, I was wrong on a few things. I was right on a bunch of things, but I was wrong on a few things. And the facts have actually changed. So the stock IPO'd at just under $70 billion in 2019, May of 2019, I believe the IPO was. Today, it's 110 billion in market cap company. So it's gone from 70 to 110 billion since 2019. So it's not like, you know, I've missed the boat or anything here. Like it's, it's the, the stock's up since IPO, but it's not, you know, tripled. And I think it is a significantly, significantly better business than when it was in 2019. If you look at the revenue growth rate since then, the business grew revenues by 56% in 2021, 86% in 2022, and now uh, 23% trailing 12 months. So it's, it's, it's really, it's really died down a little bit. But in 2021 and 2022, they did, they, they did exactly what Airbnb is and these new sharing economy companies and said, what happens if we like double prices, you know, what happens? And, you know, ridership has only gone up. So, EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization has been negative, 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 negative every quarter, basically, until Q4 of last year. And then now more consistently into June 23 and ending quarter. So Q2 of this year, they generated 530 million in EBITDA, 600 million in the latest quarter ending. And so The business is actually generating real free cash flow, generating actual operating margin and some and some scale there. The mobility business has been tremendous. That's like, you know, when you call an Uber car, that's grown by 50% CAGR over the last three years. The delivery business has grown by a 50% CAGR and the freight revenue, which is a segment that I don't fully understand yet and have to do more digging on, has been explosive, but off a much, much smaller base. The total Uber trips on the platform dipped as low as 737 million in the quarter ending June 20, 2020. The latest quarter, they did 2.4 billion trips on the platform. So ridership has gone out through the, through the roof. Wow, here's the kicker. During that same time frame, their take rate... So, you know The money that they take of, of money spent on the platform has gone from 15% to 27%. So the take rate has expanded dramatically while trips have gone up. That is a recipe for actual operating leverage in the business. Now, how have they been able to pull this off? What are the actual facts that have changed? Competition has been crushed. Lyft is like what? How many quarters away from being bankrupt? Take rates have been flexed from the low to mid-teens to the high 20%. It hit as much as 29% in 2022 while gaining actual market share, making real cash flow now. And they can potentially now, uh, first quarter over quarter, where they stopped diluting shares, shareholders, and the share count actually went down. So that share count's been dripping up and up and up and up and up over time since IPO. You have to, when you, when you don't make money, how are you going to fund the business? So they, they can finally stop diluting shareholders. They can finally start making money and they can keep growing. And I think this network effect has reached too big to compete. I think the moat has got really good out of, not out of nowhere. That's not true. The, The moat's been, the moat's been good. I think I'm just finally understanding it. So that's, that's my pick for stocks on the watch list today. Uber, a company I never thought would potentially be in the portfolio, but you never say never with investing. You never, you never put your head in the sand and say, you know, never going to take a look at this name ever again. When the facts change, which I think they have been both qualitatively and quantitatively, I think Uber is set up to do extremely well over the next 10 years.
1: No, I mean, it's hard to disagree with you. They definitely changed things around, and I know the joint TCI was listener, I was trying to get the charts on. Yeah, you're uh, doing a good chat. job there. Yeah, yeah, trying to get all this stuff, at least so people could get a visual at the same time. And I looked at Lyft, and they're still not free cash flow positive, so I hadn't looked at them in a very long time. But the revenues are increasing a little bit, but at some point, I mean... Especially in the current environment, investors are demanding profitability. That's what it's stock it is. is down eighty seven percent since IPO. Yeah. Yeah, I mean and they've done a tremendous job. I don't know. Do you know when Uber One came out for Uber? The subscription business? Yeah, the subscription business. Must have been a couple I'm of years sure. ago, right? Yeah. Cause that yeah, was a pretty right. smart move. If you use like Uber pretty often, it's definitely worthwhile. I've, I've used it a little bit mostly cause they had promotions and then I just cancel it <laughs> in advance. <laughs> I yeah. cancel it like, you know, a month from now <laughs> and it's no asses. longer I free. <laughs> <it>. <laughs> I mean, you know, I think it's, it's a good
0: idea too, right? Like if, if you're a city slicker and you don't own a car or, you know, you're like me and my car basically just sits yeah. underground 10 months a year take a lot of ubers because it's a little bit more convenient it's easy and and it just works and it's so much better than cabs at this point like oh yeah even in new even in new york a place that's just been dominated by the cab business like dude it's it's uber now
1: yeah exactly and i think people's people kind of Easily forget that but especially if you're living in this city um, you walk a lot or you could be taking the subway or you know the light rail in a, in Ottawa maybe you have a car but you barely use it Crunch crunching numbers oftentimes even if your car is paid off you know the insurance and the gas and the repairs that you don't have to do if you get rid of that car and take public transit once in a while you take an uber you'll probably end up saving money not to mention you might might sell your car and it's probably worth thirty forty thousand dollars depending on your car Well, yeah i mean depends (laughs) depends the car but dude used cars are like They've gone down expensive. in price a little bit. Yeah, they definitely they gone, gone down, okay. but they're still Fair they're still pretty expensive. But that's something for people to consider as well. But for me, I mean, I I've only used that, never used Lyft and it does feel like the network effects are just just too powerful especially with the fact that they have the food delivery and you know uber traditionally no i think it's it's looking good and obviously if we get like self-driving cars i eventually that could even improve their margins even more so it's something to to keep an eye on and i don't know if you knew that so i used to about 10 years ago i used to work at the city of ottawa and i work with bylaw services but it was uh, in the licensing And one of the things they licensed was taxis. And these plates, so in Ottawa, and it's similar in New York City, and I'm assuming it's probably similar to all the cities. So back then, I mean Uber was kind of starting, but it was still very niche, not a lot of drivers, not a lot of people using it. And these there was a limited amount of taxi licenses. So oftentimes there, there was actually a black market for them. Because they were so valuable, because you could be essentially licensed. And I remember in Ottawa, I don't know what the exact price was, but it was tens of thousands of dollars when if you bought it from the city if you were lucky enough i mean it would probably cost you a couple hundred dollars that's it right and i think new york city was the same where it was probably over a hundred thousand dollars for the license i'm just kind of throwing numbers there my memory like it's been 10 years ago but it was staggering numbers and remember that's money 10 years ago so (laughs) it's just uh, it just kind of shows i don't think these licenses are worth that much anymore i don't think they're probably only worth face value because you can and become an Uber driver. Yeah. That's
0: right. That's right. It, and you look at the story in terms of like the company and like the, the founders who I think his name's Travis, I forget what his last name is. The, the the founders who had to push through just immense regulatory hurdle. They basically had to be gangsters, like operate this thing illegally for a long, long time. And, he, and I just think long term you have questions about how the business operates in a cell like a in a driverless world so that maybe they can be the leader in that technology. I think that, you know, I think Tesla wants to be a leader in that technology. So, so that brings some uncertainty into the, into the fold. Of course, that's still a long way out before that's widespread adoption. And not to mention that has to go through all of the OEMs and car manufacturers. So, you know, being not long kushtard because of electric vehicles has not been a good trade. It's not been a good trade. And I don't want to make that mistake here as well with Uber saying, you know, that, that's, that's coming, that's coming, that's coming. And, and it very may well be, but maybe it's an opportunity for them, if anything, uh, for, for margins to go up and run that technology and, and own that business. So maybe that's that's an even better opportunity. But of course, the market hates uncertainty. They hate the long-term disruption threat. So the thing that I need to kind of just to, to wrap this all up, next steps for me to, would be to understand the other two segments. Like, what are the unit economics specifically of the delivery business and this freight business that I didn't really even know they had, if I'm being completely frank? Because I, I understand the the mobility business. I understand the margin profile. I understand the moat there. But the competition and delivery is very tough. The marketing spend is absurd, like absurd. Uh, DoorDash is the biggest player in the U.S. They have most the most market share for that business ahead of Uber, which I was surprised to, to hear, yeah, but uh, in the U.S., it's a, it's a bigger brand, probably. I guess it would be Canada. Skip
1: the Dishes in Canada, right? The second one, because I, I probably assume second, Uber's yeah. the biggest, right? Uh, yeah, Uber's
0: definitely the biggest in Canada. That's my best guess. DoorDash is the biggest in the U.S. Uber's number two player. So I need to figure out those two business segments a little bit better. But dude, I I think that it's impossible. Back where I was going about the Travis story, like they're they're operating this thing illegally. Uh, you basically need zero interest rate v- venture capital phenomenon to fund a business for this long to lose this much money for so long. No one's funding anything like this right now. No one in VC world is funding anything like Uber right now because it's you have to burn cash for way too long, and, yeah. and that works when there's zero rate interest environment. So where I'm going with this is this is impossible to replicate right now. Like th- this moat is. Incredible. And so I got to just do a little bit more work, but it's a fascinating company, right?
1: Yeah. Now. I mean, it's amazing because you have to, people probably don't realize, but there were taxi unions, the amount of pressure that governments got, local governments for banning Ubers early on. There was a lot of stuff that they had to kind of push through. You know, I don't know, maybe sometimes they. We're kind of tiptoeing the line of what you should and should not do. But again, right now, it, it's looking pretty tremendous. I thought, actually, you were going to say you're going to try to be an Uber driver for a little bit just to see. <laughs> yeah, <genetic laughs> some boots you on the ground research. Yeah. yeah as as, you know, some listeners order an Uber in Toronto. Brayden shows up. Yeah. <laughs> Every year, I have
0: this thing where I'm like, for my cardio... I'm going to get one. I'm going to strap on one of those backpacks. and I'm going to bike around the city and deliver people's pad ties. Uh, I
1: never end up doing it, though. But one of these days, man. I do have a question for you. So when you get into an Uber, do you want the driver to be chatty or not chatty? Ooh. Or it depends on your mood.
0: You know what? I put it this way. I usually will have my headphones in. I'll be like listening to some a podcast or something. So that that kind of signals like no, I don't yeah, want chat. Yeah, that's fair. But coming home from the bar, I've had a couple drinks in me. I Chatty I, <laughs> I start asking them way too many questions. I've done that. Like, too, I start yeah. asking them. The next thing you know, I know everything about like this guy's like family. He has three kids. All of them go to university. X, Y, and Z. Like I know everything about this dude by the end of my trip. If I've had a couple of pops on my way home. But but that's pretty much the only yeah.
1: time I talk. Well, to it's them. the same thing, right? And I probably you know I think we're done on the investment talk. But the last thing I'll say is, it's like getting a massage, right? It's always like I don't know if I should be talking It's just not saying anything. Like, but well, I feel like if we're so doing true. a we're doing a Seinfeld episode. Right? <laughs> So true, the the massage, yeah. Yeah, if we have some massage therapists, tell us what the etiquette is. Should we be yeah. talking or like, you know, it's fine not to. To be honest, I'd yeah. rather talk
0: in an Uber than to my massage therapist. Other than like, what's the spot? Yeah, that's the spot, <laughs> you yeah. know, like, yep, that's the sore spot. I want to just zen out, dude. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I guess for me, it doesn't I matter because is... I, I get deep tissue massage all the time. So, I'm like almost in pain oh, while in pain. I'm getting massage. Yeah. It
0: yeah. hurts so good. I, I think that that's one of those just like human intuition, like vibe check on, you know, if you want, if you want people to <laughs> chat or not. I, when you get in an Uber, I don't do this as much anymore. I don't know why I did this so much, but I used to always get in the front seat. The guy would always look at me funny. I like, oh, wow! like, always <laughs> get in the front seat. Well, I used to get, I don't get it anymore, but I used to get really sick sitting in the back of cars.
1: Oh, okay. Okay. That's fair then. I'm sure if you explain that, they'll be like, okay. Yeah. If I look at my
0: phone in the back seat of a car, I want, I like, I have to puke my butt, like My I wife's like that too. Fever. Yeah. But if I do that in the front seat, I'm okay. Especially if I look at a phone or something like. Yeah. You I can sick. do
1: whatever in a car and fine. But my wife's like that. She, if she can't like look at her phone for too long in the back seat. if not, she'll get yeah. busy. Yeah. yeah. So so, yeah okay.
0: so the Uber drivers would always look at me funny. I'm like, sorry, man. I just got to sit in the front. Like. Yeah. Some you want to keep cool your car it. clean. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Some people are cool with it, but some not always. Thanks for listening to the pod. We appreciate you. We are here Mondays and Thursdays. I'm here Mondays. Dan. By the way, we need a new, uh, we need Dan. We need specifications for the two Dans because we have Dan Foch that runs the Canadian real estate investor podcast. We have Dan Kent who runs the Thursday episode of this podcast. We'll, We'll have to talk in our internal Slack and get like nicknames for them because we can't just keep doing Dan. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> no one I don't know what you're talking about half the time when you're like oh I was talking to Dan about this I'm like no
1: I, I try I just to, to figure out it. if it's
0: bear if it's bearish I know which Dan you're talking to okay
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's pretty easy yeah
0: <laughs> so uh we'll have to figure that out but thanks for listening folks we appreciate you we'll see you in a few days
1: the Canadian investor podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice Brayden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.